The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Well, we continue to go through our mini-series on worship. We have two more left. Uh, What we've been doing together as a church is discussing why we are to worship uh, a certain way called an acceptable way in Scripture. What is that? And what does that look like? So that's what we've been talking about over the summer. And we, uh, over the past month or so, have been talking about the two ordinances or sacraments being baptism and the Lord's Supper. Today we are going to wrap up talking about the Lord's Supper. Then we have one more topic next week and we wrap up the series. And today's topic can be a bit controversial because what we are talking about today is wine in the Lord's Supper. Wine in the Lord's Supper. A lot of controversy, a lot of conflict surrounding uh, this particular topic. And really, when asking the question regarding whether or not we should have wine in the Supper, it comes down to two issues. Authority and sanctification. As far as authority goes, about 120 years ago, there was a movement in the church to replace wine with Welch's, uh, that is, with grape juice. And the leaders of this movement uh, said that alcohol is sin or that it leads to sin, and so we should change the practice away from wine to grape juice. That's actually how Welch's got started. Uh, Welch's got started because of uh, this movement. And it was also the common uh, practice uh, before this time to drink from one cup. And it went to several individual cups during this time because, as you know, when you drink wine, alcohol is a natural killer of germs. But then once you started to move from wine to grape juice, uh, people started to get sick and drink it from one cup. And so they moved to several uh, individual cups. Now, while not every church in America obviously embraced this, a large swath of churches did. And the question is, did these men who changed the practice of the church from wine to grape juice have authority to do that? That was the question. Did they have authority to do that as mere men? And of course, the answer is no. And then we ask the question, what did the Lord give us and why? And I want to show that the Lord gave wine And he gave it for a reason because of the rich symbolism in Scripture. Now, there's two concerns that arise at this point. Uh, The the first is the weaker brother whose conscience is afflicted by this. And so we want to continue to love our weaker brother. And we're going to still have grape juice uh, in uh, offering in the Lord's Supper. So we're not going to remove grape juice, but we are going to add uh, wine. But the weaker brother whose conscience is afflicted, Uh, We want to love them in that. We don't want their conscience to be afflicted while taking the Lord's Supper. So we'll keep that. However, the weaker brother has no authority to impose their conscience belief on the other brother who wants to take wine in the Lord's Supper. Uh, The other concern is that this is going to lead a person who used to be enslaved to drunkenness, to, to fall off the wagon, to fall back into sin, even with a very small cup. And so this is going to lead into a discussion about sanctification. 
How are we sanctified? How do we avoid sin? And so those are the two important issues regarding the use of wine in the Lord's Supper we're going to talk about today. First, symbolism. And second, sanctification. So first, symbolism. And it symbolizes four things. Wine symbolizes four things in the Supper. They are judgment, redemption, blessed joy, and the age to come. And so first we're going to see judgment. Now we're going to be jumping around in Scripture quite a bit. And so I'll read some Scripture and then other Scriptures I'll have you turn to. So let's just start by turning to Psalm 75, 7-8 through 8, and see the symbolism of judgment in a cup of wine. Psalm 75. 7 through 8. And of course, when we jump around uh, as we're doing, uh, we just can't give the whole context of the passage. And so we're just going to be looking at various verses and tying it together in light of the storyline of the Bible and seeing the symbolism that God uses. Psalm 75, 7 through 8 says, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. So the context is judgment. In verse 7, it says that it is God who executes judgment. And verse 8 begins with 4. So verse 8 is going on to explain verse 7. Why is God the one who executes judgment? Well, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine. So the reason it is God who executes judgment is because it is His hand that has this cup of foaming wine. He's the one to whom judgment is given. He's the one who executes judgment and is symbolized by a cup in his hand of foaming wine. Now obviously, we should go without saying that God doesn't literally have a cup in his hand of foaming wine, even though that's what Scripture literally says. Rather, this is figurative. This cup of foaming wine is being used figuratively, being poured out. It's a sign of judgment. And notice who is the one who's going to drink it. Well, it says, all the wicked of the earth. Every single wicked person will drink this cup. They will drink it down to its dregs. Every last drop will be drank by the wicked. And that reveals that God is going to show no mercy to the wicked on Judgment Day, those who have not turned from their sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Those who have rejected Him. Those who have rejected God even as He's revealed in creation. There will be judgment. There's no escaping it. And every last drop will be drank. And this idea of drinking a cup, it's personal. It's going down into your being. This imagery is used to describe the personal nature of the full judgment of God apart from mercy. And it's a cup of foaming wine that is used in Scripture. Then Isaiah 51, 17, if you turn over to Isaiah 51. And I actually want you to keep a finger in Isaiah 51. 
when we turn to the next passage. So mark it, keep a finger in it. Isaiah 51.17. It reads, Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So again, judgment is symbolized as drinking to its dregs from a cup of wine. And this is a cup of wine because it's synonymously called a cup of staggering, a reference to, to drunkenness. Just as drinking a large amount of wine affects the individual to staggering, so drinking the judgment of God greatly affects the individual with another kind of staggering, torment and fear. Now keep your finger in Isaiah 51 because we're going to turn back there. And I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, the uh, last book of the Bible, obviously. Revelation 14. What I'm just showing you is how Scripture uses a cup of wine to refer to judgment. Isaiah 14. I'm sorry, uh, Revelation 14, 10 through 11 says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So without going into all the details again, all I'm showing you is wine is associated with the judgment and wrath of God on the wicked. Here it's a reference to hell where idolaters are tormented day and night, forever and ever. Revelation 16.19 says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath so Babylon here is used figuratively a Babylon was an actual historical kingdom it was during the time of Israel's first uh, ex or Israel's exile it was the first kingdom to bring them into exile and so it is an actual kingdom. But during the time of Revelation, it no longer existed. And so Revelation is using this figuratively of the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world, this wicked world is going to drain down to its dregs the wrath of Almighty God, represented by a cup of wine poured out that they must drink. So we see in Scripture a cup of wine symbolize God's judgment and wrath. But we read in Scripture, God declare that He would take that cup from His people. I want you to turn back over to Isaiah. To Isaiah 51, verse 22. Isaiah 51, verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. 
Obviously, this refers to Israel. Israel under the judgment of God in captivity, or at least prophesying about it, and God saying He's going to remove that judgment. But it also prophesies God removing the judgment from us. We who are by nature children of wrath and under the wrath of Almighty God. God promises to take that cup from His people. And it says here, He is the one who pleads their cause. And just think about how amazing that is. He is the one who pleads our cause. Who defends us? Who is uh, the one who presents a solid case for us? It's God who does it. We do not need to do it. We have a tendency to do it, don't we? We have a tendency to try to reason with God, to try to twist His arm, to get Him to love us and accept us and forgive us. Uh, when we fall into sin, we say things like, Lord, Lord I, look how sorry I am. Look at how hard I have been trying to live for You. Look at how I have been extra righteous in avoiding certain pleasures that You say are okay. I have punished myself by withholding pleasures. Not eating for a day to make up for my sin. Look at how devoted I have been to You. We do this and many such things. And while we may not think that's the case, yet what we are doing is we are trying to make a case before God to forgive us and to be merciful to us. It is to plead with Him and to show forth our righteousness. But God says, you don't need to do that. I will do that for you. And God doesn't do it by trying to find some loophole in the law or by saying, well, let me take your good and make a case out of that. Rather, God is a God, as Romans 4 5 says, who justifies the ungodly. He pleads the case of those who are ungodly. And he does so by an actual and real righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that Christ has secured for us in living a perfect life under the law for us. We needed to obey or we would be cursed forever. But Jesus, true God, assumes our humanity and obeys for us so that we would have His righteousness as our own, so that His righteousness would count as our own. And then what about this cup of wrath that has been taken out of our hand? The Lord drinks it for us. He Himself takes it for us. Luke 22, 41-44 says, And Jesus withdrew from His disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So when Jesus says, remove this cup, to what is he referring? Is it a literal cup right before him? Is a literal cup causing him to be in agony? 
Well, obviously not. But what is Jesus about ready to face? He is about ready to face the wrath of Almighty God on the cross. And that rightly brings him into agony because he understands what that means. To face the wrath of God for every sin of every individual who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to drink that cup. Not a literal cup, but using the symbolism of Scripture, the cup of the foaming wine of God's wrath. He is going to drink it down to its dregs for us. That is how the cup is removed out of our hand and is put in the Lord's hands, and He drinks it down to its dregs. And how amazing is this? God promises to remove that cup from us. But when His Son pleads for that cup to be removed from Him, He doesn't take it from His hand. He has His Son drain it down to its dregs. Because that is how sinners would be saved. That is why you and I who believe are not under the wrath of God. That cup has forever been removed out of our hand and the Lord drank it down to its dregs. He drank damnation for us to believe. That is an amazing thing that should cause us to burst with joy to our Lord who loved us and gave Himself up for us. And this leads to the second thing that wine symbolizes and that is redemption. I'm going to jump around here, uh, so I'll just read these for you. Psalm 116.13 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So now we see the cup of salvation. Yeah, obviously, salvation is not contained in the literal cup. Rather, again, this is, this is figurative. A drinking. Lifting up a cup refers to drinking wine in celebration of something. In this case, it's salvation. And we see what this cup of salvation is at the Last Supper, which becomes the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, 27, and 28. Our Lord Jesus says, or it says there, and He took a cup. Again, using the same imagery throughout Scripture. He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the new covenant or of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins so jesus says that the cup of the lord's supper is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins obviously this is not literal but figurative so the cup of the lord's supper as we see here both judgment and redemption come together here it was taken by Christ, poured out for the forgiveness of sins, he says. This cup poured out for the forgiveness of sins refers to judgment. And it also refers to redemption for the forgiveness of sins. So we see in the cup of the Lord's Supper that we drink, both come together we taste the bitterness of the wine and are reminded of the bitter sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also taste 
the sweetness and are reminded of the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that we have in Him. And the fruit of the vine, which is what uh, he calls it here in verse 29, refers to wine in the first century context. And we know that it was alcoholic based on 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul rebukes some at the Lord's for for getting drunk at the supper. You can't get drunk on grape juice. And so they used wine as part of the Lord's Supper and in the Last Supper here. And we'll see that Paul did not say to the Corinthians uh, who were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, look, you have to stop using alcohol. Rather, he said, no, remember what this is. Remember what the cup is. It is the body and blood of Christ that you partake in, not literally, but spiritually. It represents that cup that Christ drank for you. The bitterness in it. Bringing you salvation. Bringing you the sweetness of forgiveness. And so this is precisely how we turn away from sin's allurement. By remembering the glory of the Gospel. By remembering the glory of our Lord. By remembering His love. He gave Himself up for you. He faced the wrath of God for you. He drank that cup for you. And would we go on living in sin? Oh, may it never be. And so forgiveness of sins, redemption and judgment and what our Lord has provided for us is represented in this. And so a third thing that wine represents is blessed joy. Psalm 104.15 says that God is the one who gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine and bread are associated with this joy that God gives. And what greater joy is there than in salvation? And then Nehemiah 8, 9 through 10. Again, I'm just jumping around here. You can jot it down. You can look at it later if you'd like. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to read these to you. Nehemiah 8, 9 through 10 says, In Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So what I'm showing here is that the opposite of mourning is to celebrate by drinking wine and eating fat. Eating fat, the best portion of the animal, and drinking wine. In fact, Nehemiah commands it because it is not a day of mourning. Precisely because it's not a day of mourning, go drink wine because this is a day of joy. And notice also it's a holy day. He says this day is holy because it's holy Drink sweet wine. If wine and alcohol was unholy, God would have never, first of all, never commanded it. Second of it, second of all, definitely not commanded it on a holy day. Now the removal of joy, on the other hand, is associated with the removal of wine. Jeremiah 48.33 says, Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the winepress. 
No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. So what is associated with the removal of joy? It's the removal of the wine press, the removal of wine. So wine is associated with blessed joy. A fourth thing that wine symbolizes is the age to come. That is the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Turn over to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, where we see this. The context of Isaiah 25 is heavens and the new earth. We see this based on verse 8, which says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. So, what is associated with death being swallowed up forever? Is it not, where, in what context is death swallowed up forever? Is it not in the new heavens and the new earth? It's not while we're here and every tear is wiped away from their eyes? Well, Revelation 21 says that's the new heavens and the new earth. It explicitly says that. So, that's the context. And in this context, we read in verse 6 on this mountain, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So the Lord speaks of the age to come as happening at a specific mountain. Again, mountains are used figuratively in Scripture. Isaiah 2, it says the mountain of the Lord at the end is going to be the highest of all mountains. It's not topological, but theological. It's talking about Mount Zion, the place where God dwells with his people. Hebrews 12 says that's what it is, the city of God. Well, here we read in Isaiah 25 of God making a feast for all peoples. So it it also includes the Gentiles. And this feast includes well-aged wine, of aged wine. Uh, aged wine, even well-aged wine, does not refer to grape juice. You do not need to age or ferment grape juice. The mountain of the Lord, where all people groups are in the presence of the Lord, where death is swallowed up forever, and every tear is wiped from their eyes, is where this well-aged wine springs from the mountains. So it's associated with this age, um, the new heavens and the new earth. We see that also in Amos 9.13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. The context again with that passage is the age to come. So again, this flowing of wine, this abundance of wine is associated with the age to come in joy. And hence, not only does Jesus give us the Lord's Supper, but he also says in Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink from the vine anew until his Father's consummated kingdom with us. So again, looking forward to this age to come. So there is much biblical symbolism in wine. It represents the cup of God's wrath that our Lord drank for us, that bitterness, 
It represents the sweetness of forgiveness of sins and redemption that we have. It is associated with blessed joy. And it signals the age to come of which we get a taste now when we gather together on the Lord's Day. And man simply does not have authority to change the Lord's practice and remove from the supper this rich symbolism that is found in Holy Scripture. Lord, use this symbolism for a reason, and we don't have authority to change it. Now the concern, the next concern, is that, well, this could cause people to sin. And so this brings us to the second important issue with regards to the use of wine in the Lord's Supper, and that is the issue of sanctification. How are we sanctified? How do we avoid sin? And I want to start with the notion of demonic legalism. That is, calling evil the good things that the Lord has given us to receive with gratitude. I want you to turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4 for this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as I've brought up in the past, I want you to think about, let's say a demon was going to show up and he was going to teach people in our community. Now, obviously, he's going to you know, disguise himself as an angel of light. But what would, how would you recognize that? What would his teaching be like? If a demon were to teach something, what would he teach? Probably have a number of ideas. You could think of the sexual perversion going on in our culture, uh, being being, uh, forced on our children, and that would certainly be included. Uh, Culture often takes uh, these good things and they call them evil. Well, that's included. But notice what Paul says demons teach. We see here it's not only calling evil things that are good, but also call good things evil. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So people are going to fall away from the faith. They're going to be led astray by teachings of demons. And these demons aren't going to come up with however you view a demon, a you know, a, a red guy with, with horns and a pitchfork, which obviously is not the case, but they're not going to show up that way. Rather, they are going to teach through the instruments of those whose consciences are seared. That is, those deceitful men who are, who are teaching false doctrine and who have a hardened heart to their own conscience and to their hypocrisy. But what is the demonic teaching coming out of these men's mouths? Well, verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This is demonic teaching. Forbidding good things. Marriage and certain foods which would include certain drinks. Other things created by God that are good, that are consumed. Paul says this is demonic teaching. Saying good things are bad. It plays into somebody that has a guilty conscience and somebody who's afraid, who has a lot of fear. If I just stay away from these things, then I have a case before God. 
But these things are created by God and are to be received with thanksgiving. And Paul goes on to say in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We even see, as we saw in Psalm 104.15, the Holy Spirit testified to us, wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man as a good gift. That's part of the good thing that God has given. Forbidding this is more in line with teachings of demons than it is with Scripture. The issue is not the use, but rather the abuse of these things, as is the case with, with all sin. Now, some may be concerned that these things have been abused, and so therefore we should just not use uh, wine in the supper just to be on the safe side in case somebody falls off the wagon. And I want to say up front that that is a good concern. We should be concerned about somebody falling into sin. We, we don't want to see people fall into sin. We don't want to see people stumble. Uh, we, we want to see people succeed and not live in sin. However, the way to go about this is not by refusing to offer wine to believers in the Lord's Supper. It's not the case that the Lord's Supper is the only access that someone has to alcohol. Every time you go to the gas station or grocery store, you have access to it. And also, this is simply now how, not how sanctification works, by avoiding externally good things. I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 2 as we draw to a close here. Colossians chapter 2, and I want you to see verses 20 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. And if anything, this is going to be a reminder to us of how we are sanctified. Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here Paul is rebuking the Colossians for submitting to regulations, to rules that say do not handle, that is don't handle with your hands, don't be around it, do not taste, don't even get a taste of it, it might cause you to sin, and do not touch, don't even put your hand on it. And Paul says that these are referring to things that perish as they are used. So obviously referring to food and drink. But Paul says that these are not God's commandments. But notice what he says. Rather, human teaching. These are the doctrines and commandments of men which Jesus condemned as pharisaical. If this is the case, then, then why would they be embraced? If they're not from God but from man. Well, it's because it's what Paul says in verse 23 these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. If there's an appearance of wisdom, it seems wise to avoid sin by not handling, not tasting, not touching. That's how we're going to avoid sin. 
However, Paul says that actually this way is of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. And I want you to hear that again. This is God speaking. These are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Now this is not to say that a person recovering from drunkenness should taste and touch. That you need to. We're going to force you. No, that's not the case. Rather, this is saying that merely by not tasting or touching, you're going to avoid sin is a false way of thinking. If this is the case, then we would all be doomed. You know why? Well, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. And many have plunged themselves into destruction because of it. Probably shouldn't taste, or well, you shouldn't taste money, of course. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But we probably shouldn't touch money, right? I mean, that's, it, it's pretty serious here. That plunge into destruction? Man, we, you know what? No more money for us. That, that's, that's, it's the root of all evils. We need to avoid this so that we don't plunge ourselves into destruction. Right? If you think that, just you know, leave your money in the back and uh, we'll take care of it for you. Obviously, that's not the case. You see, the, the issue is not the, the good thing that God created is good. The issue is the heart of man. And notice it says not money, but the love of money. It's the root of all evil. And I guarantee you that if you're thinking about sanctification as growing in holiness and putting away sin by avoiding certain things, I guarantee you there's going to be sins to which you're blind or sins that, that you, you're going to really struggle with that you just can't seem to shed, such as pride, anger, idolatry, where you find your comfort in certain things, sins of omission, not seeking to, to love your neighbor actively, justifying it by just saying, well, I'm just you know, kind of introverted. But the issue is the heart and not any outward thing that God has created as good. I hope you are seeing that clearly in Scripture. It is not the thing that God created as good. It is the heart of man. It's our affections. And how are our hearts and affections dealt with? It's by the Gospel. And this is why Paul starts out in verse 20 by saying, Why, if you die to the world, do you submit to these things? What does Paul mean by when he says dying to this world? How have you died to this world? Because you who believe have been crucified with Christ. You have died with Christ. You've been buried with Him. You've been raised with Him. You are completely new in Christ even though you are still being renewed. That you are a new creation. And this is why after Paul rebukes us for our legalism in 2.20-23, he goes on to say in Colossians 3.1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And why is that? Verse 3, For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. Just think about that for a moment. You have died. Right? That is a life 
verse. You have died. And isn't that kind of weird to say to people that are still sitting here breathing? You don't look like a... Well, some of you look like some corpse. You're going to look even more so if I keep going on. But we're all alive here, so how is it that we have died? You have died. It's because, not that we're physically dead, but we have been crucified with Christ. That old self of deadness in sin has died, buried in the grave. And you now live with Christ. Your life is in Him. And because of this, Paul goes on to say in the following verses, Therefore, because of these gospel realities, you have died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ, and you are now seated with Christ. And when He appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. These are truths of the gospel. Because of these truths, therefore put to death what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, anger, so forth and so on. But it flows out of these gospel realities and not do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's the gospel that produces holiness in us and not this legalism. So this is why as elders, we don't believe we have the authority to say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we're going to continue with this practice of only grape juice. We're going to also offer wine. We're not going to force anyone to take it. We understand that there's conscience issues and we respect that. But uh, we don't believe that we have the authority to say we're not going to have wine because of do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch. That we actually should receive a rebuke from God for that. So both of these ordinances really reveal to us, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, the gospel realities. The Lord's Supper reveals to us and symbolizes again that bitter cup that Christ drank for us that results in the cup of blessing for us. And it's a sign of the age to come in baptism symbolizes these realities of having been crucified with Christ. That you have died going down in the water. You have been buried with Christ. But you have been raised to newness of life. And that's a good segue into baptism. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.